Well, welcome everybody to Downtown Harbor Church. If it is your first time here, my name is John. I am the lead pastor. Here's some exciting news. So last week was our largest non-holiday attendance in the four years of our existence. So that's exciting to see what's, what's happening in this year. You can clap. That's exciting. I showed up today and I go, oh, there'll be 15 people here today. But anyways, so, so I'm glad you showed up. And speaking of which, I was talking to some folks that came today for their second week in a row. Well, last week was their first week. And I said, oh, I'm so happy to see you. I was telling my wife afterwards, you know, we had so many guests. And, and they came on a day where we're kind of talking about alcohol. It's a little bit of a controversial issue. And I said, I'm so happy to see you. And they said, oh, well, it's not a problem because right after church, we went right to the liquor store. I said, okay, there we go. <laughs> Pro- that should have been a practical. Anyway, so we are in this series. That's a real story. On, in the confession booth, known as the top of the escalator. Anyway, we are in this series called False Memory. And false memory is a scientific term. Uh, it's a psychological phenomenon whereby humans misremember things. We remember things that did not happen. All of us struggle with this. You're telling stories and you're done. Someone looks at you and you go, oh, it didn't happen at all like that. Really? Okay. And it's a real problem sort of in the legal system. False memory often leads to a lot of false accusations. It becomes an issue with unreliable sort of witness testimony. It's a real problem. And one of the areas that we've been focusing in on and will be focusing in on is how false memory begins to impact, I'll call it, our relationship with Scripture. Last week, we talked about how a lot of Christians, particularly if you've been a Christian for a long time, if you were a child when you were a Christian, a lot of us have certain scripture memorized. Some of the, the big ones, right? Let's call it like John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That one, we got, not a problem. Outside of that one, it gets a little cloudy, right? It's just sort of like, ah, kind of think, I remember, remember this thing. And we start quoting things that really aren't in there. And the next thing you know, we've created bad theology. And so what we're doing over the course of the next couple of weeks is we're just having a conversation. We're just talking about verses and phrases and things and concepts that we would swear that we read in the Bible, that we remember hearing the Bible says, we remember a, a pastor talking about it, when in reality is just not in there at all. So the one that we're kind of talking about today is heavily attributed to Scripture, um, but it was actually written a little more than 400 years ago, and over the last 10 years has enjoyed a resurgence in popularity. So today, we're talking about to thine own self, vitro. A couple of weeks ago, as I was kind of charting out this series, how we're going to be, you know, talking, what topics, what issues, whatever, I got to this one, and I was like, you know what? I'm just going to test some people of this church, right? And so what I did, and I just did this morning too, I reached out to people who have been longtime Christians, who really know the Bible well, and then I set a trap for them. So this morning I go to my buddy, I go, hey, let me ask you a question. You, you know the Bible real well, you know, play to their pride. I said, you know the, Bi- the Bible really well. I bet, I bet you can't tell me which book, which chapter, and which verse to thine own self be true is found. And he stops and he goes, huh, well, let me think. I am fairly certain if my memory serves me correct, it's in the book of James. I go, oh, you're scaring me. You're scaring me. And this is like everybody I texted, it was, I think it's Corinthians. No, that sounds more like somebody said the book of hesitations, which I thought was really good. Okay, but <laughs> I'll steal that joke from now on. Um, here's the thing. It's not in there, all right? And, and the reason so many of us think that this is in the scripture is because it says thine. 
All right, we all know that Jesus spoke like this. So anytime we hear thine or thou or hath, that's just got, that's got to be scripture. Well, I just hate to be the bearer of bad news. But if you remember reading this in the scripture, well, that's false. That's just not in there at all. This is not wisdom that was given to us by Jesus. This is not advice, you know, bestowed upon us by Paul. This was advice given from a father to his son on the way to Paris in one of Shakespeare's most famous plays, Hamlet. Now, if you're someone who said, well, John, as soon as you put that up, I mean, I knew that was not the Bible. I knew that was shit. Good. That's congratulations. That's really good. I'm just going to let you know that you are in the minority. When you research this on Google, you will find large amounts of people who truly believe that this is found in the Scripture. So now that you learn the truth, you may go, okay, well, cited it wrong, not a problem, because it's still beautiful prose. I mean, it's still this challenge to sort of be the best version of yourself that, that you can, can be. But this to thine own self be true has actually become something of a, a mantra in our culture. In 2019, for the last 10, 15 years, this idea of being true to yourself, sort of let's modernize to thine own self be true, being true to yourself has really become a mantra in American culture, and I could say in, in worldwide culture. And so as I was just doing some research on the phrase and how this phrase is beginning to work its way into our culture, I stumbled upon an article that was published in a very well-known um, periodical, and it just gave practical tips. Hey, if you're looking to practically live out to thine own self, be true, to be true to yourself, here's three things that you can do. And I thought it was interesting, and I thought we should just take a look at it briefly. The first thing it said is this. Being true to yourself starts with knowing who you are and accepting yourself. The subtext was you need to learn your strengths, you need to know your limitations, you need to know your talents, and it's getting to a place where you just say, okay, this is who I am. This is me. And I think that just sounds kind of reasonable. Not a problem. It continues. Number two, you have the total power to live your life any way you want. Now, I would certainly say that this sounds very empowering. I mean, nobody could argue with that. This is certainly a very empowering thing to read, an empowering thing to say. I think it does open up the way for a, a couple of questions that we're going to tackle later on. But number two, that's what it wants you to do. Wraps up by saying, number three, don't worry about pleasing other people. Living by someone else's standards or rules. And it goes on to say that you need to live your life as your natural self, without compromise, because only you can be true to yourself. And so we look at this phrase, to thine own self be true. I pulled this off Etsy, all right? Because when you Google this, this is all you see. It's just image after image of, you know, fancy script with flowers. And, and we look at this, and it just gives us such affirming sensations, right? It's just this warm feeling, and it talks about personal truth and, 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 and individuality and, and self-ownership. And it just, it sounds really good. It sounds really great. And this has really become, in my opinion, a driving force in our culture. You may not quote this exactly, but the essence of this sort of phrase has become a driving force in America in 2019. But as an English major, I was always trained to sort of ask the question, and the question I found myself asking this week is, this what Shakespeare had in mind? When he wrote this verse over 400 years ago, was he thinking about sort of self-identity, 
Was he thinking about individuality and self-affirmation? Is this what was going on? Now, part of the reason people hate reading Shakespeare um, is because it's near impossible to read and even harder to understand. I get that, right? And the last time probably any of you read it was like senior year of high school when they forced you to read, you know, Romeo and Juliet or whatever. But I was forced to read this stuff for four years. And even though I do enjoy kind of diving into literature and picking it apart and finding hitting meaning, I still don't like reading Shakespeare. I just don't like reading it. But before I tell you what he actually meant when he wrote this, it's important to understand who said it. The man who actually uttered the words to thine own self be true. His name was Polonius. And Polonius, who, who, who is the, let's call it, author, if you will, of this phrase that we see as a call to personal integrity, Polonius is widely considered to be the most vile man in any one of Shakespeare's work. When you, when, when, you, when you look at him, you learn that in Hamlet, he is used as comic relief because he never shut up. He would just talk and talk and talk, and it was, and it was hysterical to even read. I mean, they thought it was funny. I don't, okay? Um, another thing is this. His daughter, Ophelia, spoiler alert, because you're not going to read it anyway, Ophelia kills herself because of what her father did. Her father, Polonius, used her as bait to try to capture and catch Hamlet. He also hired spies to follow his children around, to find out what they were up to. And he was famous for hiding behind curtains all throughout the castle, eavesdropping on people, trying to find out what's going on. And so this picture that you're seeing here, that's not him standing up, that's him dead on the ground. Because Hamlet caught him behind a curtain, gave him one of these, okay? With a better picture now, of the character of this man, Polonius, the man who uttered the phrase that we love to thine own self be true. Any English professor worth their weight in salt will tell you that what Shakespeare actually meant when he said to thine own self be true was this. Be loyal to and look out for your own interests above those of everyone else. This you're not going to find on Etsy, okay? I looked. It's not there. Imagine going to somebody's bathroom in their house and this is up there. That's a problem, right? It's time to leave. This is not, these are not the people that we want to be hanging out with, right? But this is a far cry from what we think to thine own self be true means. And the original audience, interestingly enough, when they would hear these words delivered, when they're in the, the Globe Theater, so to speak, and they would hear these words, they would immediately know that what Polonius was saying was simply a, a call for worldly self-advancement. And the irony of this is that as a culture, have we been sort of waving the banner of to thine own self be true, unknowingly we have begun to manifest the true meaning of this phrase. And, and we have modernized the phrase to thine own self be true by saying things like, well, you got to look after number one, right? You got to look after number one. You do you. You do you. Never say I'm sorry. Live your life, never say I'm sorry, and you've got to live your best life. These are just a couple of things, a couple of captions, a couple of hashtags that I just pulled off Instagram. These are the modern versions of what Shakespeare was trying to articulate when he said, to thine own self, be true. And what has become abundantly clear and uncomfortably so is that we are in a love affair with self. As a nation, we're in a love affair with... All, just go on the internet. 
blogs, YouTube channels, Facebook, Instagram. We love our self. It's post after post after post of just sort of promoting ourselves and elevating ourselves. We just can't get enough of it. And Apple knows this. That's why they just dumped a ton of money to make your forward-facing camera even better. So you can take the best selfie of your life, put it up there on Facebook. Living my best life. Here it is. Okay? We love it. So here's the question. And this is the question that I want us to just focus on for the next however many minutes. Is to thine own self be true? The way that Shakespeare meant it, and even the way that we believe it to mean. Is that compatible with how Christ has called us to live our lives? Is it compatible? So let's dive in. One of the main tenets of this mantra or this movement or this mindset, if you will, is this the idea that we need to be accepting and celebrating yourself. And I would just say that within this, are some pretty good ideas. I mean, the idea of celebrating yourself is a little unusual, but this idea of accepting yourself, there's some really good things that can be attributed to this. But I will just tell you this. There's also some hidden dangers. There's also some hidden dangers, and we, and we need to talk about that. So one of the things that we say here from this, from this you know, stage many, many times is that we firmly believe here at DHC that God has uniquely created us. We said this just two weeks ago. We believe that God has uniquely created you with a unique personality, a unique perspective, a unique history, a unique story, and that you can use that unique concept of self, if you will, to propagate the gospel. The way that we talk about it is that only you can do what you can do with what you have. You have the ability to get out there in the world and to get in front of people that maybe I can't or somebody else can't. Only you can do what you can do with what you have. But while we all have some really great qualities, we got some stuff that needs to be worked on, right? And the problem with this idea of just accept yourself is that there's no guidelines, we don't really know what that means or, or what to do with it. So I'm just going to let you on the secret. If you're a Christian in the room, I'm going to tell you something about yourself that you may not know. Um, you actually have a split personality. There are two selves. The way that I would describe it as a true self and a new self. And the new self is who you are in Jesus Christ. That when you say yes to Jesus, you are a new creation, Scripture says. That God sees you as redeemed in his eyes. You are a new creation in Jesus Christ. However, the old creation is still in here. And the old creation is your true self. And the scripture has a lot to say about our true selves. Let me, let me show you what it says. Jeremiah 17, 9. The human heart is the most deceitful of all things. And all things means all things. And desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? And what this is talking about is that as humans, we really suffer from a lack of self-awareness. We, we can't even see what's truly going on inside each and every one of us, particularly because we do do some good stuff. But we begin to measure our own goodness based on other people's goodness rather than on God's ideal of what he sees as good. Jesus jumps in to talk about our true self. He says this, For from within, out of a person's heart, there's that heart again, 
come vile thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these vile things come from within. They are what defiles you. And you just look at this list and it's just this gunk, if you will, is in each and every one of us. It's down there, whether we want to realize it or not. This is our true self. This is our fallen nature that the scripture talks about. But here's the thing. You look at this list and you have to ask the question, are we to accept this? Are we to celebrate this? You see, the problem with the mantra of, ah, I just got to be me, is that we begin to accept these things. And rather than working on the issues in our life, rather than handing these things over to Jesus and say, Jesus, I know this is not what you want for my life. Can you begin to work through these issues? Can you begin to, to, to change who I am from the inside out at a greater level? We end up just saying things like, well, that's just me. That's just me. It is who I am. This is what, you know, you see what you get. And, and, and often, we begin to celebrate it. See, because if we can start to celebrate these issues, we can change the script. We can change the way that we think about these things. So, for example, you got an anger issue. Ah, I'm Italian. We're fiery people, right? I'm Italian. I can say that. <clears throat> no, you have an anger problem. That's, this, is, this is what's going on in your life. But let me let you in on a secret. When you become a Christian, when you say yes to Jesus, the moment you commit your heart to him, you take a step onto this beginning of a journey. Scripture talks about this journey as, as sanctification. It's a long, complicated word for meaning. You become more like Jesus. And as you live your life, the more you read Scripture, the more you come to church, the more you have conversation with other, with other Christians, you become more and more like Jesus. And during this lifelong process of sanctification, Jesus and the Holy Spirit begin to sand off the rough edges, if you will, of the old self of the true self, and you become more and more the new self, a picture of who Jesus really wants you to be. And we just need to be careful. We just need to be careful that we are not accepting things and celebrating things that Jesus and Scripture say, you might want to work on that. That's not what I want for my new creations. Just want to be careful. The second concern that we have with to thine own self be true, and we're going to land here for the rest of the day, is that it does something. It makes life all about you. When Jesus called us to live for the you next to you, in all ways, in everything that Jesus do, did, he showed us that our life is all about denying ourselves, living for God, and, and living for other people. And one night after he was done washing the, the feet of his disciples, which is quite frankly a humiliating act that he did to show them and to show us the importance of just getting rid of yourself and, and just serving and loving those around you. He said something amazing. He said this, a new command I give you, right? So God is now giving us a new commandment. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And so in this world of loving ourselves, quite frankly, 
Jesus says, mm, you need to love one another. And you need to love one another as I have loved you. In the manner in which I have loved you. Like I have loved you, I am now commanding you to go out and love other people. That is the way that people will know that you are a Christian. And if that's a command, okay, what does that look like? How do we do that practically? What does it look like to break the cycle of self, get the spotlight off ourselves, and begin to love other people? Luckily, Paul tells us exactly what to do. A couple of verses I just want to walk through and show you what he's talking about. Number one, he says this. Don't be selfish. Don't be selfish. You don't live in isolation. So don't make life all about you. Your actions, your behaviors, they have a real impact on the people in your life. They really do. So be considerate of that. If you're married, think about your spouse. If you have children, think about your kids. If you just live in the world, think about your neighbors. You need to be considerate of those. See, here's what he's saying. You don't live in a vacuum. So you need to be very careful about this idea of you do you. He continues. Don't try to impress others. Now, this is an interesting one on a number of levels. So if you are somebody who is always, let's say, seeking the approval of other people, because we've all been known to do that at times, I'm just going to let you know that's a losing proposition. It really is. Because when you get it, oh, you are flying high. But when you don't, you're destroyed. You, you, and you're laid low. And, and it sets you off on this vicious cycle of, of being like, well, what do I got to do? What do I got to do? What do I got to do to get their attention? How do I get their attention so they can look at me and they can be impressed by me and I can get the praise that I want and I can get the adulation that I want? What must I do to get their attention back on me? This is a problem. Because often, this has the reverse effect of what we're trying to do. See, when you try to impress people, they know. And it's distasteful. And it's a turnoff. And it actually pushes them away. And in your effort to draw people nearer to you, what you're doing is actually pushing them away. So Paul says, you know what you should do instead? He says, be humble. Thinking of others better than yourself. Whoa. Wait, hold on, Paul, stop, stop, hold on. You can't be serious. You, you don't actually want me to, to actually, I, I know you're saying these words, but you don't really mean that you want me to like, believe that other people are, are better than me, right? That's not what you're saying, right? You're, you're not actually saying that you want me to humble myself and, and, and lower my profile and spend my time building others up. How is the world going to know what's going on in my life if I keep it to myself? How are they going to know how great I am if I spend all of my time seeking to encourage others and lift other people up? Paul would say, yeah, exactly. Exactly. He continues on. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. He's saying two separate things here. Again, it's this idea. He's saying, you don't live in a vacuum. You don't live in this world of isolation. So when you're considering your interests in this life and what you're looking to accomplish, make sure you consider the interests of those people in your life. Yeah, but Paul, I got a, 
I got to look after number one. I got to take care of number one in this life. Paul would say, yeah, I mean, to an extent you do, but never to the detriment of anybody else, particularly to those closest to you. He says, don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. It's a little bit of a play on words. What he's doing here is giving us just straight up relationship advice. Why? Well, because, let's be honest, we're really only interested in what we're interested in. Isn't that the case? We're really only interested in what interests us. And Paul is saying, look, if, if you want the world to know that you love them, if you want others to know that you love them, you need to take an interest in what they find interesting. It, it can't always be about you. So find out what your spouse likes and get plugged in their, into their life. Find out what your kids are interested in and show up in their life. Find out what your coworkers are interested in and show up in their, in their life. This life isn't just about you. You need to begin to think about other people. He says, he continues, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Kind of resetting. He goes, all right, remember, when we're talking about you, when we're talking about the way that you're going to interact with other people, you must have the same attitude as Christ Jesus. Who, he said, who? Being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage. This is interesting. Paul's challenging us. He goes, just think about who Jesus is for a second. Jesus is God. Jesus is equal to God. Jesus is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He is the alpha. He is the omega. He is the Lord and Savior of all humanity. And yet, he never used any of that for his own advantage. He never used that to sort of leverage that on his own behalf. He didn't walk into a restaurant and go, table up front, you know who I am. And yet we do this all the time. All the time we try to leverage who we are, what we've done, to try to gain a one-up on somebody else, to try to take advantage of somebody else, even in our own lives. And I, hate, I, I don't want to think that anybody in this church does it. But it's like, hey, I'm the breadwinner in this family. I'm the one whose paycheck is bigger. We do what I say. In this household, Paul goes, no, 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 absolutely not. At every step of the way, we just find ourselves building ourselves up, inflating our own ego. Meanwhile, Jesus does the exact opposite. He says, rather, he, Jesus, made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Literally, it says that he emptied himself. Everything that he was in heaven before he took on the flesh of a man. All of the glory, all of the honor, all of the authority, all of the praise that he received, he emptied himself of all of that. And yet, what do we say? She's full of herself. He's full of himself, which begs the awkward and uncomfortable question, am I? full of myself. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. It's a verb. He made a decision. No many, nobody made the decision for him. He chose to humble himself, to place himself under, to submit to. And who did he choose to submit to? 
you and me. How did he do that? By becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. In a culture where we have been programmed, where we have allowed ourselves to be programmed to do nothing but celebrate self, let's be honest, it rings hollow in the shadow of the cross. And Paul takes us on this journey away from self, and he drops this enormous example of Christ Jesus right in our laps for one reason, to shake us loose, to get us out of our own heads, to get us out of our own little world so that we recognize that Jesus' death on the cross gave you the power to say no to yourself and yes to others. This life that we're all living, Jesus would say, it's not about you. It's not about you. It's about the you next to you. So, what's the practical? What do you do with a message like this? If it's your first time at DHC, every single week we put this word up on the screen because we want to make sure you can leave on a Sunday and know exactly what to do with what you've heard. Here's what I believe. I believe that in this country there is an epidemic of self. It's, it's a real problem. I don't think anybody would disagree with that. And we need to break the cycle. And if you're someone in the room who, who struggles with this, because I think we all do at some level, you may ask the question, all right, where do we begin? How, how do I start? I would just challenge you to start with those closest. That, that when it comes to your, to, to your spouse or your kids or your family, particularly with the holidays coming up, Thanksgiving is right around the corner, Christmas is right following that, what would it look like? What would it look like for you to begin to take yourself out of the equation? That in everything you do, you put others first. And you just said, you know what? It's not about me anymore. It's all about you. I think for some of us, that's a, a scary and daunting proposition because you're tempted to say, well, John, who's going to look after me? I got to take care of number one. And if, and if you're challenging me to put myself aside and just care for those around me, who's going to take care of number one? Who's going to take care of me? I'll just tell you this. And I think scripture bears this out. When you begin to model selflessness, others can't help but join in. And as you begin to serve those around you, they're going to begin to serve you. As you begin to look out for the interests of those around you, they're going to begin to look out for your interests. And it just creates this wonderful environment of mutual submission, mutual selflessness, where I take care of you, you take care of me, I take the spotlight off me, I put it on you, and it just becomes a wonderful environment, devoid of self and full of love. That's how Scripture has called us to live. So this week, I would just challenge you as you're processing this and how this may or may not impact you. Remember, the world doesn't need more me. It needs more love. It really does. And if we can begin to get this right, a lot of things will begin to change. And it starts with those closest to you. So let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the opportunity that we could come here today and just have a conversation about an issue that 
quite frankly, impacts every single one of us. Lord, I think part of our fallen nature, that true self, is that we really do live in, a, in an egocentric world. Maybe it's a survival instinct. I don't know, Lord. But so often we're just tempted to make it all about us. And Lord, you've shown us that this life that you've called us to live is about those all around us. That in every way, Lord, we are to empty ourselves, to deny ourselves, to live for you, Jesus, and to live for those around us. This is not an easy message, Lord. It stings sometimes to think that we may have gotten just caught up in all of this. But I pray that today, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would challenge each and every single one of us at some level to begin to, to break this cycle of self and to begin to pour our lives into those around us, our kids, our spouses, our parents, our siblings, our family, our neighbors, our coworkers, and those sitting right next to us in this church. And Lord, as we do that, I pray that you are honored in our attempt to live out the command that you gave us that fateful night 2,000 years ago. Love one another, not ourselves. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.